Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. For the second time in five years, and the third time in the past decade, the United States government was poised to shut down this weekend because of an impasse in the House of Representatives over how to fund the government. And as a result, the national park system was poised to shut down as well. However, an 11th hour compromise was reached Saturday night that will keep the government funded for another 45 days before it again might be poised for a shutdown. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Different administrations in Washington take different approaches to whether to shut down the parks or keep them open during a government shutdown. Back in 2013, the Obama administration elected to close the parks. Five years ago, the Trump administration decided to keep them open, albeit with skeleton Park Service staff. To learn more about the impacts of government shutdowns on the national park system, both physical and financial, we're joined today by Bob Krummenacker, a recently retired Park Service veteran whose last position was superintendent of Big Bend National Park, and John Garter, the senior director for budget and appropriations at the National Parks Conservation Association. We recorded this podcast on Friday, prior to Saturday's developments, but the takeaways of how government shutdowns affect the national park system are important to know just the same. We'll be back in a moment with Bob and John. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Welcome back to The Traveler, gentlemen. Nice to be back. So, Bob, let's start with you for a minute. What are the mechanics of closing down a national park? Well, first thing it starts off, Kurt, is the parks in the field await the direction from Washington. And even though the parks are often the poster child for government shutdown, we're often the last agency to actually get the good information. But that did come out today. We're recording this on Friday. So um, assuming that nothing changes, um, the parks will be shutting down. Employees are told to report to work um, for their normal schedules the first day of the shutdown on their schedule. And we estimate it takes about four hours to do what they call an orderly shutdown. So in this case, all the parks that have gates and locks um, on entry points or buildings have been told to shut them down. So there's all the logistics of putting up barriers, making signs, and we have to be very uh, cognizant of following the messaging that we are told uh, that comes from Washington. And ultimately, that comes from, from the White House um, in terms of what the message is. We can't blame Congress for a shutdown. We just have to be very matter of fact. But ultimately, it's incredibly 
um, disruptive, obviously, to the visitor, um, to any gateway community, any concessioner, any contractor that's working in the park. Um, there are a very small number of people that are generally allowed to work. And I think the service between when we're recording this and Sunday, we'll figure out how many those are. But those typically are related to life, health, and safety. So a um, relatively small law enforcement staff, a few maintenance people that are maintaining critical utility systems. Um, but we're also told in general not to have bathrooms and visitor centers and uh, entrance stations open. So, you know, the normal services that people are accustomed to will not be provided. And, and of course, they can't be provided because the law is very clear. While each administration, as you point out, has a little bit of discretion. Um, the law is very clear that if um, if Congress does not provide an appropriation, um, agencies cannot operate. So um, Park Service would love to put out the message that we regret this. And we're generally told, don't mention that, just be factual. So we often get blamed and superintendents get blamed for the local decisions. And they have some discretion, but for the most part, it's, it's directed by at the national level. Now, a park the size of Big Bend, I mean, that's a big place. How do you how do you ensure that um, it's closed, quote unquote? Well, you can't guard every boundary of an 800,000 acre park, but the vast majority of the public comes in through two paved road entrances. And actually, um, I was just shocked when I worked there. We did not have gates that we could easily close. So um, I'm not entirely sure whether those gates are um, have been put in yet. We ordered them several years back. Um, so the park will have to put up barricades and it will put skeleton staff at the entrances, um, law enforcement people to, to turn folks away. Um, the river runs through the park and obviously the upstream part of the river um, does not have any ability to put a barrier on it. Um, but the message hopefully will go out to private and uh, private river runners and outfitters that if you're going to take out inside the park, um, you shouldn't put in up inside uh, outside the park. Um, and there's no way to stop people from crossing the boundary. And I think there'll be a little bit of discretion for the managers to determine whether or not that's acceptable to walk across the boundary um, where there are trails or, or no trails. But on my watch, when we if we had had that choice, we would have put up signs where there are trails across the boundary saying the entire park is closed. What what does the general public think? The visitors in the park when you come around on, say, uh, you know, Sunday morning of a closure and say, well, you know, it's been nice having you, but now get out of the park because there's government shutdown. Well, the message that I always sent out to staff um, who had to do that was be really empathetic um, and, um, you know, don't um, push them out. We're told. Um, and it varies from shutdown to shutdown, but people have 24, 48, or 72 hours. I'm not sure what it's going to be this time. So we say, you know, if we're if we're not going to be quoted by the media, the message is we're really sorry that your government is this dysfunctional. Um, this is not a local decision. Uh, we regret it. Um, but please, you will need to be um, planning to go out of the park. And and people get frustrated, but they generally, with that message, don't get frustrated at the ranger in the field. You know, it's the bigger picture. Um, and and um, But the communities get really upset. You know, there's a lot of people who um, make their living um, supporting the tourist economy. And Big Bend has over a $60 million impact on, on its gateway communities. Um, and so there is a major impact. And this is where the the, the frustrations get. The I think the local 
businesses and local governments often don't recognize that we've got a very limited amount of discretion at the field level. And so a lot of that is aimed at the superintendent. And one of the one of the um, frustrations is um, while I, as superintendent, was allowed to work for a limited number of hours, it was all about coordination internally and with the agency externally, um, I was not allowed to do any media. Um, or even local government conversations. Um, and and so, um, you know, the conversations you would like to be having with the local elected officials and your business community, um, we're told that there's no appropriations. We're not allowed to have those conversations. So what often would happen, and I imagine most superintendents are doing this, um, between now and Sunday morning, there's a lot of phone calls that are going to be made saying, hey, look, here's the way it's going to look. And, you know, we're, we regret the inconvenience. Um, here's what we can do. Here's what we can't. Um, but it's it's awkward because even our web our website shut down, um, and yeah. so impossible to provide current information even on the status of of um, you know the shutdown itself. Yeah, this time I believe um, they they want to close the parks, um, get visitors out within 24 hours by Monday evening. Um, what about backcountry travelers? I mean, if I entered uh, a national park on Friday for, for four days in the backcountry and uh, the park closed on Sunday, I mean, do, do rangers actually go out trying to find these people or you just uh, let them run through the end of their permit and say goodbye when they exit? For the most part, we let them run through their permit. You know, they're not the guilty party here. Um, the park has gates, but generally the gate is across the incoming lane. Um, so the parks will look at its backcountry permits to try to figure out who's out there and where are they likely to be. And, um, you know, sometimes people are quite surprised when they come out to find a ranger meeting them. <laughs> but, um, no, we're, we try not to be heavy handed about it. And, um, you know, those people have virtually no impact. So they're not going to be able to do the things that they might've wanted to do in the front country on the rest of the trip. But, they'll be asked to um, to leave the park as quickly as they can. Now, with thousands of Park Service employees being furloughed through a shutdown, you know, I know law enforcement rangers and emergency response personnel usually are kept on. Is there enough staff in the park to protect the resources? And I ask that thinking back to 2020 and the COVID pandemic, and there were a lot of closures across the park system. And Big Bend um, had a problem with uh, people coming in and, and garbage collection. Um, can can the park service properly take care of these places during the shutdown? There's almost two answers to that. We're not able to do it when we're not shut down because we don't have enough staff. But um, if, if that's the baseline, it's challenging because each park is told by some uh, national formula, how many people we're allowed to to have working. Uh, Big Bend was fortunate as a border park. We were given permission to have more people than um, at other parks that I have worked that are not on the border. Um, but no. Um, and, and so um, it is difficult. And the, the reality is if you're not allowed to clean your bathrooms and you're not allowed to have your bathrooms open, if the people are there, they still need to do their business. Um, and so, um, you know, it's a catch 22 on this. Um, so, um, you know, one of the interesting things, Kurt, is that several states, um, Arizona and Utah, um, and even I think this morning, Colorado said, we'd like to work with the Park Service to use our money to keep the parks open. The contingency plan that was put out says that we can negotiate those agreements, but they will not be reimbursed. And the other entity paying for it will have to pay for the full cost of operations. And uh, 
there is nothing behind that that I have been able to see that indicates what do we mean by that. But hopefully that means, um, you know, the the staff that the public never sees, you know, and the, the natural resource work that has to be done um, and monitoring um, and, and things of that nature, not just the visible sites um, or, or aspects of park operations. Um, but it's difficult, you know, and this is why most park superintendents, I think, while we regret the shutdown or the need for it, um, prefer when the parks can be closed to the public so that um, we're not, you know, getting that imbalance um, out of hand of more people than we can manage. The other thing that's worth pointing out is some places can't be closed. And, and I do think the contingency plan that was put out um, for the first time in my memory actually acknowledges that. So um, we're not going to try to put up barricades around the Washington Monument and uh, at Big Bend, we also administered, uh, they administer the Rio Grande Wild Scenic River, which has no gates. And so that will remain open, um, but any services that would have normally been provided in those areas, the message needs to be gotten that, you know, emergency services only, and then they will be limited. As you mentioned, Bob, um, there is a, a huge economic impact tied to a government shutdown and shutdown of the national parks. Um, I was talking with the uh, CEO of the Great Smoky Mountains Association the other day, and uh, she told me that October, of course, at Great Smoky Mountains National Park is prime fall color and hiking season. Um, park visitation in October is usually 1.6 million visitors for the month, and typically the Great Smoky Mountains Association's retail operations generate about 15% of the organization's annual revenue just in October alone. And there's always concerns that if, you know, there's a prolonged shutdown, you know, what that will do to, you know, tourism towns. John Garter, National Parks Conservation Association, you know, can you put a, a fiscal number on the cost of shutting down um, the national park system, what what it means in, in daily economic income? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking, Kurt. I That is definitely one of our biggest concerns, right? This is a totally avoidable situation, and there are a lot of costs. One is the economic cost to surrounding communities, right? When people change their vacation plans, when people are just confused by the situation and, and don't go to parks and, and don't spend their money in those gateway communities, there is a serious impact to, um, to those businesses. The Park Service found that after the October 2013 shutdown, um, there was an 8 million uh, a decline of 8 million visits during that month of October and over $400 million in lost revenue. And looking at um, visitor spending and visitation in October 2022, we're projecting that there could be, that there's a threat to as many as a million visitors each day in October not visiting their parks and that threatens as much as $70 million in visitor spending. It appears from the- On a, on a daily basis? Each day in October. $70 yeah. million. That's, that's our projection. That is at risk. Of course, some people will still go. And so, you know, we can't estimate exactly what people are going to do, but um, that is how much there would normally be spent. That's definitely at risk. There are a lot of other costs as well, of course. Uh, there are the costs to concessioners. And there is our cost to the park service, which Bob can speak to, but you have the cost of um, the opportunity cost of lost labor when people aren't out there in the field doing 
a lot of things. One would be um, routine maintenance, which only threatens to uh, lead the backlog to grow further. Uh, you have lost scientific capacity and other resource protection, which doesn't get the attention during shutdowns as the impact on visitors, but is critical. There are long-term studies that are going on in parks all the time, and you have lost you have gaps in data for things like tracking wildlife in Yellowstone. You have uh, clean air and clean water studies that um, are undermined. And of course, the Park Service is struggling with doing baseline condition assessments to determine how they are going to um, uh, try to adapt to climate change as, as best they can with the resources they have. And then there's the cost of, of cleanup as well and assessing the condition of of resources um, in particular, if there are impacts from visitors uh, or, or uh, intentional wrongdoers um, causing harm to park resources. And there are a lot of remote areas as well. Um, and then finally, if I may, there's there's also the cost to park service morale, which, which uh, you know, Bob and other superintendents and frontline park personnel can speak to. Um, you have uh, all Park Service employees, basically, who are um, going to be worried about when their next paycheck is going to be. That creates a lot of financial stress, as with all federal workers who can't be working during the shutdown. You know, and that's harder during a time when they are making ends meet and, and trying to find affordable housing increasingly, an issue that you've covered very capably on the traveler. And you also have the impact on morale when already it's hard when parks are understaffed on a good day and you have employees um, doing multiple collateral duties, resource professionals, for example, who are asked to help park cars or, or maintain bathrooms because there are so many visitors. And so then going into this, you have those few staff who are out there as, as well who um, have to do what Bob said, you know, go out and compassionately tell visitors, sorry, the park is closed. We hope the visitors will also be compassionate to those Park Service staff, and there will be some, you know, some angry people, and and it's just it's it's going to be really the, the the costs are so diverse and so many, it's very disheartening. We're talking today with uh, Bob Kramenacker, a longtime Park Service veteran, uh, recently retired superintendent of Big Bend National Park, and John Garter, the senior director for uh, budget and appropriations at the National Parks Conservation Association, about government shutdowns and their impacts on the national park system. We're gonna take a short break, we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. Treat your finances to a three-month certificate at Interior Federal Credit Union. This is a limited time opportunity to receive 5.22% annual percentage yield on a three-month certificate. Available beginning October 2nd, 2023 for new money only. Available for members of Interior FCU. Need to join? Apply at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty 
and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at vrpfoundation.org. So John, um, what can you tell us about possible funding scenarios for the National Park Service under a continuing resolution if Congress is able to pass one, um, or even under adoption of federal funding from for fiscal 2024, which just opened? I mean, you're wired into what's going on in Washington, D.C. What are you hearing in, in, in terms of those two aspects? It's an excellent, excellent question, Kurt, right? Because this is all about a funding impasse on the next appropriations bill for fiscal year 2024, which of course begins October 1st. We're dismayed that Congress is is not currently on course uh, to pass a stopgap continuing resolution anytime soon. The Senate has been seeking to uh, move a measure that uh, I believe has flat funding, which is normally how continuing resolutions work. Hey, John, can I interrupt you for a second? Um, th- this is Friday. You don't think there's any chance that they'll pass a a CR before Sunday? There is a a chance. I mean, there's a chance for a lot of things, but it it certainly appears that we are on a a collision course to a government shutdown. It's it's hard to imagine um, a way out of it unless something, um, there's some unexpected development on Capitol Hill. So so flat funding, keeping our parks open would be helpful. It's obviously short-term. It doesn't allow the park service, it doesn't allow superintendents to have dependable budgets. There are, you know, it's 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 a short-term fix, but it's, um, it's what's needed to keep our parks open. The house has been seeking to move a continuing resolution that has some uh, unrealistic uh, and, and frankly damaging policy provisions that um, are a non-starter with the Senate, it's the kind of stuff that just does not belong on a continuing resolution. In addition, an effort to make uh, bills, bad bills, even worse. Our our concern in in particular, we have an interest in several of the appropriations bills, but of course the one that um, is most relevant to the Park Service is the Interior and Environment Appropriations Bill that funds Park Service operations and other uh, National Park Service accounts. The House bill, as it currently stands, seeks to cut um, 12.5% from the Park Service budget, which is uh, extraordinarily damaging, probably unprecedented, and completely unrealistic. Uh, A cut of that magnitude, 9% of that is to park operations, would lead to furloughed staff. It would would mean the the loss of of hundreds, if not as many as 1,000 Park Service personnel who cannot be out in the field. It would mean superintendents would not be able to hire the level of seasonal rangers that they need to accommodate increasing numbers of visitors, likely lead to closed facilities or reduced hours, and other cuts to operations that would be um, felt deeply by uh, on both the resource protection side as well as the um, the visitor services side. There's also a a cut of, I believe, 50% to Park Service construction, which would significantly undermine the bipartisan progress that we've seen in recent years to address the Park Service deferred maintenance backlog. And that's that's part of what is uh, so, so disheartening and, and really alarming here is that we have seen on both sides of the aisle support for addressing Park Service funding and the recognition that the Park Service needs more help. 
through the Great American Outdoors Act, the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, and the um, FY23 appropriations bill that provided a needed increase and is bringing 500 park service personnel back into our parks. There's still 2,600 staff short, but we have seen all that progress as well as the Inflation Reduction Act providing some important climate funding as well as personnel. And this just threatens to undo all of it. So, so we are urging the House to um, abide by the bipartisan budget agreement that is guiding bills in the Senate that are austere. The Interior uh, and Environment Bill there provides relatively flat funding for the Park Service. If the 5% federal pay raise is not provided for, um, they'll probably have to lose some staff because they have to absorb those fixed costs. It's an austere bill and more has to be done in the long term, but at least it abides by that bipartisan budget agreement where the American public and Congress understood that this was a deal. It's not fun, but that's a deal. And th so the House has to come to the table uh, and negotiate in good faith on a bill that looks like the Senate bill and does not provide these kinds of ridiculous cuts and damaging cuts that are proposed in the House. So, so Bob, as a superintendent, where do you begin to cut when this happens to you? You get a, a note from Washington saying, oh, by the way, we've got an 8% budget cut we've got to enact. Where, where do you start cutting with the realization that you're already operating on a pretty thin um, financial line? Well, one of the challenges is that there's never a linear path between what we're doing and what the budget will actually be. There's all this um, noise and smoke and mirrors on all sides. And, and so um, planning is really difficult because, you know, if we knew next year the budget cut would be X, uh, we could plan for it even if we don't like it. We would know that. Um, so even before I retired at the end of June, um, we were being given direction that it looked like there was going to be a pay increase that would uh, make up for the inflation of the last several years, but it wouldn't likely be funded. Um, and so, as John said, that's about a 5% additional cost to personnel. And most parks, it's anywhere between 60 and 85% of their budget is, is, um, is personnel. So, Kurt, the first answer is we fill virtually no jobs. Um, and therefore, the attrition of people leaving um, determines what our um, organizational um, strength is. Um, you know, we're not necessarily, um, you know, choosing strategically what we won't do. We are choosing to not do the things where um, we have an opportunity to, to lapse a position. Um, we are not at the park level um, free to furlough um, people who are not hired um, with a furlough as part of their jobs without further um you know, uh, direction and and clarity from Washington and a lot of impact on personnel. Um, certainly any discretionary contracts that we may have that are funded from operational things, um, you know, those get stopped. Um, and so, um, you know, many of the construction projects that John uh, referred to from uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and uh, Great American Outdoors Act and other things, um, that those have already been funded and they will go several years, but um, we will not have the ability probably to do those projects completely um, because the costs have gone up. Um, and so the ability to um, even ask for additional funds to finish uh, the original scope um, gets eliminated. Um, you know, we do less monitoring. Um, we will um, selectively close facilities, trying to 
sort of maximize the, um, you know, uh, the, or, or deal with this ratio between what's the impact on the visitor versus what's the impact on the budget. Um, and so a lot of peripheral campgrounds and vault toilets and things of that, um, like that don't get uh, opened. Um, and so we save some money there. Um, you know, parks that have um, winter closures or snow plowing, um, those will be extended, um, you know, and roads may not be plowed as fast as possible. Visitor center hours will be cut back. Um, you know, there's always this tension between our commitment to provide excellent public service um, and and hiding um, the truth of our budgets. Um, and um, I, I think at the field level, at least my perspective was, um, let's let's not treat this as a facade and make everything that we can look really good to the public and then have nothing supporting that behind. Um, but not every superintendent is comfortable with that and, and not every um, regional director or director is comfortable with that. So there's gonna be a lot of debate. And John mentioned the impact on morale. Um, and, and I think, you know, Above and beyond the uncertainty of when your next paycheck is coming, there's this great sense even senior people in the park service have um, that we're not valued, um, and um, and and so we're already in 2023 having difficulty recruiting and retaining the staff we need, even with the funding we have, and this just provides another cut. Um, you know, the last shutdown was 35 days. And, um, you know, the, the dysfunction and disagreement within just one party um, um, in, in the House is such that I can see this being a very long shutdown. And we're going to lose employees that just say, you know, I can't live like this because I joined the Park Service because I love the mission, but I'm not paid on time. I'm not valued. You know, and, and this is the challenge for, for local managers is, is we want to value our staff, but so many things are taken out of our control. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious, um, back in the, the shutdown of 2018 into 2019, of course, we saw some vandalism in the parks. We saw some um, illegal off-road driving, um, obviously um, waste accumulation and whatnot. 2013, um, I think things ran a little bit more smoothly um, in terms of keeping the parks uh, protected and, and keeping visitors out. Can either of you recall a more dark day for the National Parks and the National Park Service than the one we're facing now? And and I say that, you know, um, we haven't, you know, don't know when we recorded this show, whether there would be a shutdown, we're assuming there will be, um, but it's just early days. But looking at the, the fiscal outlook for the Park Service with the cuts that, that um, Congress has been talking about, has there ever been a darker day? I, I'm going to jump in and say, um, I think we have to be careful of assuming that the um, unrealistic budgets that John talked about that the House is talking about will ever pass. Um, and so I'm not at the stage where I think this is the darkest um, long-term fiscal um, situation for the NPS. So, you know, people, when they vote, have to understand that, you know, how they elect their officials at all three places, the House, Senate, and the White House, impacts the decisions ultimately that come on parks. And very few people probably vote around the National Park Service. Um, but right now we have a divided um, government and um, that probably mitigates the worst um, scenarios possible. 
Um, but I think the darkest day that I've seen was sequestration um, a decade or more ago, um, where um, you know there was a bipartisan agreement to to cut budgets, um, and um, and and that had horrible impacts on, on the national park. So, is that possible that we'll see something like that? Yes, and and I think, um, but I think in the in the short run, the darkness is the fact that it's absolutely unclear when or if we'll get a budget. I can't imagine the Senate and um, the White House agreeing to the dire cuts that the half a dozen or so people in the House are proposing. So I think, you know, the scenario is likely to be an extended shutdown and then um, a, a continuing resolution with a flat or small cut. Um, you know, so the the impact on morale, the impact on the ability to, to look long term is awful. Uh, but I think for 24, it's not likely we're going to see the horrible budget cuts. But, you know, everything depends on, you know, the results of the elections in 24. Yeah, I concur with, with Bob on many levels. Um, that Those sequester cuts that, that preceded the 2013 shutdown, you know, uh, were, were very difficult across all the parks, I believe. And so, you know, for, for all park superintendents, they had to to absorb those cuts and and that's that's painful to do and then going into a shutdown you know just just the worst for morale in, in this case we've talked about the morale challenges and the threat of cuts and and in that regard um it is a dark time but bob's correct that those house bills just cannot they cannot possibly become law that the, the house is currently slated to take up the interior and environment appropriations bill the, the procedures are, are scheduled to start next week if they go through with it. They are not successfully passing all of their appropriations bills in the House. It, it seems to me a, a, an absurd exercise to move that unrealistic bill while there's a government shutdown. The logic is is beyond me, quite frankly, but um, you know, it, it it's not going to become law, which is why we're here, right? That's just, it's, it's a non-starter for anyone who understands that how important funding national parks is. Um, that said, I'm, for some superintendents, I would say the last shutdown was a, a dark period as well. And for them, I hope that this will be less dark. Um, there was uh, pressure on park superintendents, some of which was very well publicized, to keep parks open during the shutdown, even when there were clear indications that resources were being damaged, considerably so in some cases, as you allude to. Uh, that's that is dark. Um, we are hoping and expecting that this administration um, takes a very different approach. And from an initial read of the contingency plan, um, that appears to be the case that uh, parks will be closed, though there are a number of uh, other sometimes confusing aspects of that plan. And, and we worry that it could um, create some inconsistencies that are confusing to the public. But as a general matter, parks are closed and it appears superintendents will be supported in doing what they have to do. Close our parks in absence of an appropriation to protect visitor safety and to uh, ensure the protection of resources. So if those superintendents are indeed supported, as we expect, it will be less dark than it was last time. But if this goes on for some period, as as Bob's suggesting, there are different arguments about how long it may last. No one really knows. And that could you know, become increasingly uh, frightening 
for the various people involved that we've been talking about. We're talking today about government shutdowns and uh, national park system closures because of them and the impacts on the parks with Bob Kremenacker, a recently retired superintendent of the National Park Service, and John Garter, a budget analyst for National Parks Conservation Association. We'll be back in a minute. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. So gentlemen, um Looking at this scenario, um, poor poor park service morale, poor funding um, that isn't enough to allow park managers to do everything they would like to do, let alone everything they need to do. Do we, do we keep the, the park service, the park system as, as part of the federal government, or do we break it off as either a, a freestanding agency outside of the Interior Department, although I'm not sure that would be the solution, or, or do we turn it over to uh, an outside corporation to operate? Well, if it were moved outside of the Interior Department, I don't think it would resolve the current issue in any way. It would still be federally funded. Um, and as a guy who spent over 40 years in the National Park Service, I can't imagine turning it over to the private sector or a nonprofit, um, no matter how benign they may be. So I don't think those are um, realistic scenarios, Kurt. Well, they're already turning over some of the lodges to uh, and campgrounds to, to for-profit concessionaires to operate. Well, yes. And, you know, I think if a um, hostile administration um, supported by um, a um, Congress of um, the same party um, were um, elected, we would have to deal with things like that. And it wouldn't be so much turnover. It would be, um, you know, contract for services. Um, but, you know, the Organic Act of 1916 has been modified several times. There's never been strong support to, um, you know, to change it significantly. I hope that doesn't change. But we, I think maybe the the most important thing from your question is we shouldn't take for granted um, the support of, um, you know, the elected officials um, to continue doing what we're doing. And and for that reason, I think, you know, the quality of service and and you know, puts the park service in, in a terrible bond because, as I said, we want to provide the services to the public that um, that we were hired to do. We're unable to do it. We don't want to be the pawns. We don't want to be blamed for it. But at the same time, you know, if it's a case of close, 
like happened in 2013 or be open, um, but to be unable to actually do the job um, per 2018, 2019. Um, closure is more important. And, and frankly, I think the messaging, and this would have to come from the politicals, not from the park services, your government is important to you. And if the government is so dysfunctional that it can't uh, produce a budget, then yes, it's going to be inconvenient and it should be visible to you. Um, you know, the more we try to hide it um, in order to, um, you know, lessen the impact, I think in the long run, that's going to be damaging. Bob referenced the Organic Act of 1916, which was uh, an extraordinary idea and um, one of the coolest that we've had in the United States. There have been a lot of bad ideas. Um, <laughs> our park system was a good one. This idea of public lands that protect our some of our most extraordinarily significant and inspiring cultural and natural resources cared for by an agency a public a publicly funded agency a federally funded agency that is entrusted by the american people with protecting those resources and providing for visitation uh, inspiring visitation um, insofar that it's consistent with that protection we all own those national parks and that is an idea that the american public enjoys appreciates and supports it's a a, a federal responsibility uh, i don't expect that will ever change this is not about a money-making operation it's about caring for the places that the american public loves that define our cultural and natural history our our legacy if you will and provide for protection and enjoyment and education for future generations. So, Bob, um, whether this is a, a, a short duration of a government shutdown or an extended one, prolonged one, what does it take to reopen a park once things are back to normal or as normal as they can be? Well, the first challenge is contacting all of our staff um, because they've been told in most shutdowns to leave their government cell phones and government laptops in the office. Um, and so we don't have the normal communication channels. Um, so hopefully most parks have, have other channels to reach people. Um, but the good news is, uh, you know, in my experience, people, employees are eager to come back and resume doing their jobs. And so what we typically would do is call an all employee meeting and um, you know, just have a little bit of emotional download as to what just happened and support our staff. Um, you know, we remove the barricades. Um, typically, it takes a couple days to, um, you know, depending on how much damage was done, and that will be less if we're able to close areas completely, uh, but to get things back running. Um, but it's generally two or three days, um, you know, um, and, and the staff is eager to do that. But I think one of the things that, that's often lost here is that um, an extended shutdown um, means that we lose that many days to accomplish those things that aren't the highly visible things to the public. You know, writing plans, doing public involvement, building stuff, um, doing science and research and monitoring all the rest, you know, and and typically... Um, senior leadership and superintendents say, look, you can't make up those days. Let's redo our work plans. Let's not try to pretend that we can do, um, you know, a full year's work in, in however many less days that we have. And then, um, you know, within four to six weeks, all that's forgotten because we're so eager to get it all done. And so it's highly stressful 
Um, but I will say that, you know, once we open up, it's a joyful time. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of relationship uh, rebuilding that park superintendents um, and their senior staffs do with um, uh, business community and concessioners and contractors. Um, but there's costs. You know, there are contracts that have to demobilize in the next few days. Um, work um, is suspended. And then it will cost the, the taxpayers a significant amount of money to remobilize um, those contractors um, to get that work done. Um, and then one thing that I think is, is often um, forgotten is that, um, you know, we're also subject to the um, impacts of the seasons. And so, um, you know, October, most parks are still able to get work done, but the northern parks, um, you know, they're facing winter. If there's an early winter, there are things that um, they might have normally done in October that simply will not be able to be done. And, and, um, and so, you know, back to the closure, a Yellowstone or a glacier, um, you know, they're probably looking at hurrying up the winterizing of a lot of facilities with the expectation they're not going to reopen them. So, um, you know, it takes longer in a place like that. What, what about a concession operation like, uh, you know, your, your lodge at Big Bend? I mean, I, I imagine that would shut down during a government closure. I mean, does it take them a number of days to ramp back up and, and find their employees to come back to work? Well, Odds are their employees are not being paid. Um, and so um, the biggest risk there is they may lose employees um, and it's hard enough to attract people to work in remote places like Big Bend to the concessioner, which doesn't pay um, terribly well. Um, and so, um, yeah, in the past, the National Park has been very empathetic to the concessioner. We certainly saw this during COVID as well. Um, they may not be able to um, to gear up as quickly as, as possible. Um, you know, in 2018, they were allowed to stay open because, as John said earlier, the parks were directed that the gates had to be open. And, uh, and that was problematic. They were allowed to negotiate with us to actually collect their own trash and bring it to the park landfill, um, things that, that the park normally did. Um, but it's a mess. Um, this time, based on the direction that we're seeing, it looks like the gates to the park will be closed and therefore the concessioner will be required to close. So major negative impact, um, not just on their bottom line, but you know, even more so probably to the morale of their employees because they don't even have the support that, that uh, the government employees have. John, any closing thoughts on this situation? I don't. I, uh, I'll just commend your um, exploring this issue. It's it's really important. And um, Bob's expertise and, and those of other superintendents on whom we rely for insight. And for us, you know, we look forward to parks being open. We look forward to getting a final budget deal that will not cut park funding and working with our supporters to get the message out to Congress and the administration that our parks need love and care and support and funding and hoping for better times ahead. That's uh, John Garter from National Parks Conservation Association and Bob Kremenacker, a Park Service veteran of four decades, uh, recently retired as superintendent of Big Bend National Park. Gentlemen, thank you. Um, hopefully um, we can come back soon and, and talk about the parks being back open and uh, good times ahead. Thanks. Thanks, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you found it informative. 
We'll keep you apprised of developments across the National Park System on nationalparkstraveler.org as they rise. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rebencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.